Welcome to Rare and Remarkable Films, episode number two. I'm Derek. And I'm Kim. And speaking for myself, I'm very excited about today's film, which is William Friedkin's 1971 classic, The French Connection. How about you, Kim? Yep, I actually just finished watching this movie for the second time, so I'm very excited to get stuck into it. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to remind you all out there that we really recommend you see the film before listening to our discussion as there will most likely be spoilers as we delve into the various aspects of the film. Let's start with a a brief summary. Uh, The French Connection tells the story of two NYPD detectives, Jimmy Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, and Buddy Cloudy Russo, played by Roy Scheider, and their pursuit of French drug dealer, actually a heroin smuggler, Alain Charnier, played by the Spanish actor Fernando Rey. The film is based on a non-fiction book of the same name from 1969, which recounted the exploits of the film character's real-life counterparts, narcotics detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso, and their investigation into the activity of a major drug trafficking ring smuggling heroin through France into the US. So basically, it's a good old story of cops and criminals, but in 1971, the film exploded on the screens as something completely new and exciting. So what was your first reaction upon seeing the film, Kim? As I just mentioned before, I've now seen the film two times, and my first reaction was quite different from my second. So the first time I actually watched the film was about a year ago, and that time I found a dodgy free stream on the internet and tried to watch it then, but the stream kept on buffering, so the experience overall wasn't so great. I still enjoyed the film, even back then with that uh, terrible stream, but it was hard to get swept away in the whole experience. The second time watching it, which I just finished about one hour ago, I was blown away, particularly I would say in the second half of the film, and it really made me feel like I was there alongside the characters in the streets of New York City in the early 70s. There's a lot of point of view shots, so you could say that it's like feeling like you are one of the main characters. It's a very tense, exciting thrill ride, more the second half of the film. And then in the other parts, it feels like you're watching a kind of observational documentary about the real world. Um, yes, we'll definitely talk about the documentary style uh, aspect of the film uh, later on. Just like in The Heat of the Night that I mentioned just before, our episode one film, uh, the French connection is really driven, excuse the pun, by the actors. Specifically, the main character, the main actor, Gene Hackman, who wasn't even Friedkin's first choice for the role, uh, believe it or not. Do you know what's the background behind that? Uh, Like, who was the first choice? And so how did they end up with Gene Hackman if he wasn't the first choice? Well, various names were put forward. Um, Steve McQueen was one of them. He had just done Bullet which was produced by the same producer who worked on the French Connection, uh, Philippe D'Antoni, and he didn't want to play another cop character. His fee would have also exceeded the the budget's possibilities. Same with Paul Newman, he would have been too expensive. And and then there were a few other non-actors that Friedkin had shown interest in, as well as one not non-actor, very famous actor, Mickey Rooney. Am I getting that right? No, I'm I'm confusing names here. Anyway, there's a a very big actor who had just had a huge flop, so it was um, box office uh, poison at that time. Someone Gleason. Right? Jackie Gleason, thank you. Yeah, that's right. Jackie Gleason. What am I talking about, Mickey Rooney? <laughs> anyway, so I'm not quite sure how um, how it came to be that Hackman was was chosen, but in any case, what cinema gold was just the perfect actor in the end to play Popeye Doyle. I mean, it's pretty amazing when these kind of films get made and become classics to imagine anyone else in the role. Gene Hackman, more so than even Sidney Poitier from the last film, Gene Hackman in this role, he just 
completely inhabits Popeye. So it, it feels like Popeye is a real person and that you're just watching like a, a real guy, you know, living his life, particularly because Popeye is such a, a mixed guy. Like, you know, he does some good things, but he also does a lot of very bad things. Yeah, overall, it, it feels like the, the film is basically all about Hackman to me and that all of the other actors, including uh, Roy Schneider, um, his his partner is kind of there to, to support Hackman's performance. Yeah, he's a, it's a confronting performance because that character is really an anti-hero. He's, he's so flawed. He's very racist. He's always, no matter who he comes across, he's always taking racist gigs at them and then doing dangerous things that put people at risk, none more so than at the end where he gets the call so wrong and then just, uh, you know, keeps on doing what he's doing and, and doesn't even really kind of respond to this like really wrong call that he makes. Full on character, pretty messed up guy, but seeing Hackman portray him, it feels like you're watching a real person play out his life in front of you. It doesn't feel like you're watching an actor. Yeah, so I completely understand that he won the Academy Award for Best Actor for this film. It was really, yeah, incredible work and confronting for him too, I believe. Um, in some of the scenes, I think he had a real difficulty reaching the dark part of himself to portray Popeye Doyle. Friedkin, somewhere maybe in his audio commentary or in other interviews, he's, he's given quite a lot over the years talking about the film. Obviously, it's such a, a beloved film. I think the first day shooting was the f one of the opening scenes when um, Hackman and Scheider chase after um, the drug dealer who runs out of the bar. And that first scene where they're slapping him up and um, Hackman sticking his finger in his face. Apparently, the first day of shooting, he couldn't get to the point where it was realistic. So I think uh, that they sort of gave it up and, and came back to it later in the film. Same for the, the scene where they kind of rough up the bar with all the drug dealers. Um, walking in there, apparently, it was very difficult uh, for Hackman to, to own the room, you know, initially. But um, he, he did in the end, as we see on screen. Yeah, not an, not an easy role for him to play, apparently. And on a little side note, all... A lot of the, the drug dealers in that bar apparently were off-duty off police officers. There was a real uh, working relationship between the, the NYPD and uh, the filmmakers uh, for much of this film. Yeah, I mean, that scene is quite a troubling scene. Obviously, it sounds like it was troubling for Hackman to play, but certainly like watching it and watching, you know, these two white police officers come in and, and treat this room full of black people really badly. It's uh, it's a hard watch, that one. It really makes you think about some of the issues in, in art and politics. It feels like they're trying to portray some realism, but at the same time, you, you kind of want there to be a strong black character in the film to push back against these the, the main characters who are white. And, and also, I mean, the fact that in that scene, this whole room full of black people are all considered drug dealers or, or, or have like drugs on them. So it uh, it raises some kind of questions about how people interact with race in, in cinema as In the Heat of the Night did a few years earlier. That's right, yes. And in terms of giving um, documentary authenticity authenticity to the, the film, um, the New York detectives who made two main characters were based on actually play roles in the film. Um, Eddie Egan, who was the Popeye Doyle character, plays... Popeye's boss in the film, which is quite interesting, I think, to think about, and does a great job as a non-actor. And um, the Russo character, Sonny Russo, who's the inspiration for Roy Scheider's um, character, plays one of the other cops who I think takes part in the surveillance and also follows um, follows the two characters to Washington, D.C. I think it's it's that one. And uh, also, I think uh, someone to, to mention is uh, Bill Hickman, who's the, the stunt driver, stunt coordinator of the film, and who also did uh, Bullet before hand and um he plays the fbi agent with whom uh popeye kind of yeah has some on-screen 
you know, tension with and, and, and a fist fight at the end. Oh, wow. But uh, a great presence as well. Um, I think the, the presence of these yeah, non-actors who are not you know, beautiful people and, and, uh, but are real people um, add uh, another, another layer to the, to the film. But let's, uh, let's talk about the, the cinematography. You, you before mentioned the, the, the POV shots. Um, I, I really think the, the, the film's a masterclass in, in the use of, of different kinds of camera shots, um, different movements, the, all the tracking shots, the, the pans, the quick pans, the, the zooms, and especially the res- reverse zooms. And uh, yeah, of course, the the point of view shots. I also like the the use of angles. There's lots of high angles, low angles, and and, and everything in between. Um, the, the surveillance shots in New York City, looking down on the characters as they move through the streets. Uh, for me, that is part of the the documentary style of the film. Totally, it's um, a great example of um, handheld kind of documentary style narrative filmmaking, particularly in the action scenes. Well, I mean, in, in all of the scenes. I think you can see some of the legacy of this film in the very popular kind of born films um, directed by Paul Greengrass in the past kind of 10-15 years which have lots of long chases and handheld filming during those chases which um, I feel like take a lot of inspiration from this film Um, and there's also been lots of films that have tried to do that over the past 20 years and, and have ended up doing it pretty badly but this film does, does it really well and it's uh yeah also very impressive i actually ended up kind of googling when steadicams came to american cinema to try to work out if they had used the steadicam um in this in these chases because it feels like they do because of the sense that you kind of following so closely um the these characters but then i saw that uh, actually this film came out in 71 and steadicam came into into use in in american cinema in 75 so there's lots of shots that look like they're taking from a car driving alongside people running down the street there's lots of handheld shots as people kind of run past certain places and so the camera um, person is kind of following them or following the car um, as the, the car zooms past or the people zoom past and then yeah that mix of point of view shots as well so it creates that feeling the same feeling that a kind of a good steady cam shot will create of like really being there but it's all the more impressive because they did it without that technology which has you know been heavily used ever since that's right that's interesting it might be a good point to note that um well, we haven't mentioned the cinematographer's name. His name was Owen Roisman. He, he went on to photograph a, a lot of films um, and well-known films in the, the following decades. But apparently the, the camera operator uh, on The French Connection was um, uh, someone called uh, Enrique Bravo, who uh, Friedkin, in, in an interview um, he gave with George Pelicanos, uh, interestingly enough, um, said that uh, Mr. Bravo had been with uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba up in the mountains and had, had come down into Havana and had been a, a documentary cameraman for, for many years before before working with um, uh, Friedkin and Roisman on uh, The French Connection. Friedkin talks about this induced documentary style. And, and by that, what he meant was rehearsing the scenes with the actors going over you know, all the movements and everything, but not sharing that information with the cinematographer and the cameraman that he would prepare the, the scene with the actors and then he would go and say to the, the photography t- crew you know the characters might move here and here so let's let's light the scene from from here to there then follow follow the action as it unfolds so um Enrique Bravo must have been yeah very reactive and and following their characters and and he was told never never to stop filming I think as well this is what kind of adds to the the documentary style he's he's forced to kind of follow very quickly the movement of the, the char- characters um, in the in the scene 
which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, totally. It feels like every time the camera moves that there is just this kind of documentary crew that happened upon these two, you know, real life police and, and started kind of filming them, um, which which makes it all feel more uh, kind of real and powerful and not artificial. But on the other hand, the, the sound design, which I, I find excellent, is very stylized or very, it's been really created and it's really um creative and original i find lots of uh, great use of silence but then also uh voiceover as well and uh, yeah the sound design sound editing i think is really impressive did you did you notice the the sound did you did that strike you the kind of slower scene setting atmospheric parts of the film where there's maybe not so much going on where you just get to like hear the city there's a lot of that and that um it it sounds like someone just went out into new york city and just like recorded new york city so then that makes you feel like you're there and then they do have a fair amount of shots that look like you know that that uh, a camera person was just sent out on the street to like film life and I was struck a lot of times when they have the main characters kind of walking along the streets and it did make me think, I mean, did they shut down the street and bring in all the extras to pretend that they're doing it or did they just head out with a camera and film the actors kind of walking on the streets for real? Because it feels like they're walking on them for real. Yeah, and then the sound design totally adds to that because it, it feels so authentic and feels like the real sounds you would hear um, at that time in that city. Mm, I definitely imagine they would uh, just go into the streets with the camera. I don't think they had many permits uh, to shoot in New York uh, while, while making the film. Apart from the, the chase scenes and, and the pursuit on, on foot, um, well, another kind of chasing, one of my favorite passages in the film is, is early on. And it starts when Doyle and Russo go to, to the bar for a drink after work and they spot the, the table of, of, you know, revelers of... Uh, of wannabe wise guys or more future criminals. And they follow the group and discover Salaboka and his young wife, Patsy. And Salaboka is the, the, the criminal who's trying to work with Anna Shanye to, to bring heroin into, into the US. And the, the scenes of surveillance, I mean, it starts in the, in the, the bar, I think, with the, the music of the three degrees and then yeah, playing with the, the sound. Um, but then the, the scenes of surveillance um, of the, the little diner or kind of a um, convenience store diner that uh, Sal Bocker and his wife run and how we're sort of we're looking at it from the outside and suddenly we're inside and the, the cops are talking over the it's a voiceover and then we're wondering how can we be inside if we're in the cops sort of position and they're outside and then suddenly the camera move the camera pans and we see Roy Scheider sitting at the bar in the diner talking to Patsy and it's sort of an interesting play I think with a perspective and and um, the point of view as well so I think really well done and, and keeps the keeps the even what can be dull sort of uh, expositionary scenes um, keeps them moving and, and keeps them interesting yeah although I mean I, I do have to say I I do much prefer the second half of the film um, which is a lot more fast-paced so even though there are um, these wonderful scenes like you've just described in the first half and I really do like the kind of um, feeling that you get of watching a kind of real city play out in front of you. I also found my mind drifting a bit in the first half where there isn't so much action. Um, I wasn't as involved, even though, you know, I was appreciating the film. I wasn't like deeply in the film until the second half where there's 
starts like basically the chases start and all of the kind of I don't know exactly what you call it, but when they're kind of following um, the characters down the street and like hiding and following and hiding and following and all that kind of thing. Mm. And that seems to kind of start from about halfway and then just like never stops from then on. But the first half where there's a lot more kind of setting up the plot and, and what's going to happen and stuff. I Yeah, there were some parts where I um, felt it could have been a bit faster. And a good point. I think we all remember the French connection and love it because of the chase scenes. And I do find that some of the the scenes between cops um, in in the uh, in the cop station perhaps are a bit slow or a bit less, bit bit more forced than other scenes. But um, in any case, yes, uh, I think the second half of the the film does pick it up a notch, and that's when it's really uh, full on, head on, uh, you know, excitement um, straight down straight down the line. But maybe we can um, move on a little bit to some of the behind the scenes. Uh, Tales. Um, I mentioned before that Hackman wasn't the the first choice for the the main character, the main role. Um, what's interesting as well is that the his his kind of uh, mirror image, Anna Charnier, the the, the head uh, criminal frog number one, as they say sometimes in the film, Fernando Rey. He he was a mistake as well in in the film. Um, Friedkin wanted with his casting director, who wasn't apparently a real casting director, but was someone who who was the film critic for the Village Voice in New York. Friedkin said, "You know, I want this. I want the the actor who played in Louis Buñuel's Belle de Jour." And so the the critic, the his casting director for the film, sort of said, "Okay, got you," and then sort of set it up and uh, organized for him to come to to New York City. And and when Friedkin goes to the airport to pick him up, he uh, he finds that it's Fernando Rey, not Francisco Rabal, who was the the criminal in in Belle de Jour. And uh, in any case, um, Fernando Rey was the complete sort of wrong profile for what Friedkin had in mind. The Anna Charnier character was supposed to be um, a real kind of street. A street criminal, um, like a really swarthy uh, Corsican, and um, of course Fernando Rey is very elegant, very kind of refined um, in his uh, in his long sort of a long coat and hat, and with his walking stick and so on. Uh, not at all what uh, was originally planned, but once again, just um, I think casting magic, one of those accidents of, of cinema where something really special happens because between Hackman and Fernando Rey, it's just sort of a perfect, perfect um, combination, I would say. There's where I uh, don't really share the the same appreciation of Fernando Rey. I, like, I feel like Hackman, like, like we've talked about, just feels so real. And then Fernando Ray's character doesn't, to me, feel so real. So I um, enjoyed the kind of chases where Fernando Ray's trying to get away from Hackman and uses his cunning to do so. I enjoyed them, but he doesn't feel like a real character to me. Like you've got so much of this kind of documentary stuff and Gene Hackman really inhabiting, like I don't know if he's a method actor, but it feels like he's a method actor and really inhabiting this guy. And then the bad guy, yeah, looks to me like a character, doesn't look to me like a real guy and sort of acts a bit like a character. Um, and he's so suave, I kind of just, yeah, I feel like in the 70s, a real kind of heroin dealer would be dirtier or something, like um, come across as like more street and less um, chateau. I think Sal, like the guy on the American side of it, he seems pretty real. Like he seems like to me, you know, he's got his small time business, but he's hoping to to make the big time with his brother and everything. And they seem more real. I mean, if the Fernando Ray character had been a bit more grimy, a bit more dirty, a bit more rough, maybe maybe for me that that would have been even better. That's a good point. I, I do agree that the Sal Boca character is definitely more lived in and 
yes, um, Charnier is, is more of a more of a, of a facade, yeah, um, kind of a elusive and that didn't shock me though, and and perhaps in a sense is kind of necessary, just this kind of coldness and and, and elusiveness because at the end, you know, mysteriously, um, he he disappears and it remains, you know. Um, yeah, in, in at large, um, apparently forever. So it's kind of, it seems almost appropriate. But um, I, I do once again coming back to a, a quieter scene. I really, I really find that's um, an interesting. It's not really chemistry between Hackman and, and and Ray, but that scene where Fernando Ray and his henchman, his right hand man, are having dinner in a or in a lunch in a fine French restaurant and. And uh, enjoying wine and, and and fancy desserts and Hackman's across the street, freezing cold. Um, you know, steams coming out of his mouth. He's stamping his feet and clapping his hands to keep warm. Eating, eating a pizza and and having a cup of coffee that quickly turns cold. I just really like the the opposition and and kind of um the cop who's out in the cold and the, the criminal who's living it up you know, inside in the warmth. That's true. That's um, actually a good point because, yeah, the, the kind of assassin is this like almost like a dandy and, um, you know, wears these fancy silk scarves and things like that. So it, it's, a, it's a strong move by um, Friedkin to, to go for this uh, against stereotype uh, bad guys. Well, we, we need to move on, but we have to talk about the car chase, of course. What what did you think? What was your like first reaction to the the car chase? What do you- yeah, it's it's interesting again because the first time I saw the film was on such a bad stream, and so I didn't get the full, you know, because I couldn't watch the whole thing in one go because of the the buffering and stuff. So I didn't get the full experience of it. I mean, it's an incredible um, scene and, and has some of the best use of point of view filming that I think I've probably ever seen. It really puts you in the driver's seat or whatever. It actually makes you feel like you're kind of strapped to the front um, bonnet of the car speeding through um, New York. I mean, yeah, I'm still amazed at different parts of this film and I'm amazed at how they filmed filmed that. I don't know how they filmed that. Well, one of the things they did, they put, uh, as you said, they strapped a camera to the the front fender of of the the car. Apparently, Owen Roisman said they sort of undercranked the, the the camera so it would appear f- even faster than it uh, already was and there was um freaking in the back seat over the shoulder of uh, bill hickman at the wheel um filming as as he hurtled apparently 26 blocks at, at 90 miles an hour without stopping and that was that that one that one take or that one that one drive is what sort of uh, they they built the the whole car chase around so um pretty impressive um now Friedkin says he would never do it again. He wouldn't risk lives like like that. Um, he he said he took the camera because Enrique Bravo and, and Owen Roseman um, were married with family and children, so he didn't want to put their lives at risk. Yes, it's it's quite an incredible story. And apparently, the first shots were underwhelming for um, Friedkin, and then he kind of challenged um, Hickman, saying, "You know, well, it's just terrible. You haven't shown me anything. I expected so much more." And and Hickman got kind of annoyed and said, "You know, well, see, watch this." And and so um, either either immediately or the next day, depending on Friedkin's um, Friedkin's uh, telling of the story, they they filmed what turned out to be uh, one of the greatest uh, shots or yeah, car chases in in, in uh, well chase scenes. It's a car chasing a an elevated train, which is uh, quite original as well. It's astonishing how they've made it because, you know, I've seen lots of 
car chases and you know you got famous ones like the blues brothers and i guess uh the fast and the furious films and all these kinds of things but the, most of them feel fake like feel like oh yeah you kind of feel like that um no one's gonna get hurt because uh it looks like it's all set up but this one feels like man like yeah you can imagine people dying and, and that's why it's so astonishing because it feels like you're literally like that it's not a film that you're just some someone just really did it and from the sounds of things it's kind of what they actually did which is really dangerous but uh, right. made for an awesome shot exactly yes but uh yeah now william friedkin says it wouldn't wouldn't be worth it doing it again and i mean yeah any kids listening at home don't do it uh stay safe <laughs> that's right yes yeah, so speaking of car chases i mean and moving on again Another really great one that was also done by the same producer, Philip D'Antoni, who actually played, was the role of director as well in, in a film that came a few years later, The Seven Ups. Um, the Seven Ups, uh, well, I think of it as a spiritual sequel to The French Connection, much, much, much better than the, the real sequel, French Connection 2, which um, is a pretty forgettable film where uh, the Popeye Doyle character actually goes to Marseille, um, France, to... I think to continue his hunt for for Charnier, but the the Seven Ups, uh, where the stunts were also directed by Bill Hickman, and and so and the film was directed by Philip D'Antoni and starring Roy Scheider, is is a is a great way to to follow up the French Connection. I think uh, that real seventies New York atmosphere as well. So yeah, I'd, I'd I'd recommend that if people want to continue the the French Connection um, vibe. Interesting that yeah, the in the heat of the night and the, the French Connection have like bad sequels that I didn't know existed. And uh, yeah, as I said before, um, regarding the cinematographer who went on to do many things, as did uh, many of the other people involved. What what did you make of um, Hackman's uh, career after after this Best Actor uh, performance? Yeah, I, I I remember when we first started talking about this film, and um, one thing which I wanted to include in the podcast was like what happened to Hackman. The reason why I asked that was because I remember when I was growing up, uh, probably kind of around 10 years old or maybe up to 20 years old, that Gene Hackman just seemed to be in everything. In the 80s and, and 90s, like every second film that I watched, Hackman was in it. And, you know, whether it's uh, Bonnie and Clyde or the Royal Tenenbaums, and, um, and it was always Gene Hackman. And so I was always, one particular thing that stood out was that he always seemed to be exactly the same age. He looked to me like a guy who was just like born 60 <laughs> and would die 60. Just, he was always 60. Yeah, I mean, I even find this, interesting that this is in 71 and so he's probably late 30s or something but his um you know his face looks the same and his he's already lost a lot of hair and so when i was watching him in the in the 80s and and 90s he doesn't look that different so anyway the reason why i was asking is because he was always such a magnetic performer but then i hadn't seen much of him um recently so i just uh, again googled what what happened to him and then saw that he's 90 years old now so you know no wonder i haven't seen so much of him and that actually he did more or less retire from um, from being in films about 15 years ago and uh, has apparently been writing some novels. When he was asked apparently in 2011 if he would come out of retirement, apparently he said that he would only consider it, or he might consider it if he could do it in his own house without the crew disturbing anything and with just one or two other people. So I I hope that that happens. He's okay. 90 years old. Someone needs to get to Gene Hackman's house and, and get Gene Hackman on celluloid again or on digital because uh, yeah I mean he's really one of the best actors of the past 50 years for sure um, and like I said he, he, really, he was like in he was just such an ever-present forceful presence in cinema um, when I was growing up started watching movies in the 80s and 90s was, and so I think it's kind of sad that he's not still in films yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, no, it's a good point. He's uh, made a lot of great films, and one another one from the 70s uh, that I saw many years ago. I'd love to see again. Uh, the Conversation uh, by Coppola, I think it was. Uh, yeah, 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 Coppola. Uh, another another great film. Where that just about wraps it up. I hope you all enjoyed uh, listening to episode number two of Rare and Remarkable Films um, on The French Connection, William Friedkin's 1971 classic. He, of course, made a few other films in the following decades, but I don't think he ever reached the heights um, or the, the filmmaking success of, of The French Connection, at least from my point of view. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode and look forward to, I look forward to our next episode. Yeah, I, I wanted to... Um... <clears throat> And for the listeners that uh, I don't think we added why we picked the the French Connection, but this was one of our picks. Um, it's not necessarily that rare because it's a um, fairly well-known film, but uh, it was a good uh, early one for us being that uh, you're in France and I'm in Australia. So we have our own bit of a French Connection. Exactly. Um, so I feel like that was one reason why we picked it. But anyway, yeah, we should say bye to the listeners. Keep your eye out for the next episode. <laughs>